Good morning, Trinity Church, and happy Grandparents' Day. Yeah. I have I've finally grown to appreciate that because now I'm a grandpa. So this is, uh, this is a special day for us uh, in many ways. My name is Doug Baker. I'm the interim lead pastor here at uh, Trinity. And yesterday, uh, our senior adult ministry, led by Paul Plaxon and his team, uh, had a really terrific gathering, and I'm actually standing right on the air conditioning vent, and it's actually colder than I would like it to be. <laughs> I've been wishing for colder days. Here you go, Doug. But uh, they put on an event that was really, really great. Lisa and I had a chance to be there for the first part of it. And uh, when I attend events like this, I typically come with a list of questions that just are conversation starters, opportunities to get to know people. And so I I was asking one table, hey, do you guys have a favorite Bible verse? And boy, I'll tell you, they unloaded. It's like, yeah, of course we do. Um, Do you have a favorite sports team? How are they doing? Don't ask me. Uh, (laughs) Steve always asks me, Dodgers are doing great, Padres are not. All right, so. Or how has God been active in your life this week? So I'm asking these questions, but you know what the conversations ended up being about yesterday? Grandkids, yeah. Children. And what I realized afresh was that um, they were doing everything they could to provide everything that their families would need to live well. And I just so admire that. But you know, that isn't always possible. There are times uh, when life throws uh, a, a pitch over home plate and it's a screaming fastball and we swing and miss. Other times it's a curveball and, and sometimes we even strike out as, as parents, as grandparents, as individuals who, who want to have good done to our family. And it's at that point it, we realize how valuable it is to have someone who can come alongside us uh, to help us. We understand afresh uh, that it's good to have someone who can assist us with this parenting-grandparenting challenge. And, and when that happens, we discover the power of gratitude. We discover what it's like to be thankful for someone who comes to help us. I'd like to start off this morning with a short video. It's about three minutes long, but it's the story of a woman named Michelle and her daughter, and she, like a lot of us, failed to hit all of life's pitches. And it had put she and her daughter in a pretty bad place. And uh, so as you listen to her story this morning, listen for her emotions for her feelings, and what happens from beginning to end. So guys, let's go ahead and play it. This is the story of Michelle and her daughter. You have children that look up to you for everything, for their security, their peace of mind, their their love, and when you can't even provide any of that because you're just worried about your environment, it is undescribable pain inside that you feel and when you look at them you want the best so you have two options you keep them or you don't so I made that choice to let my children go to that home while I still suffered on the streets no one can really experience that unless you go through it yourself and you just find yourself struggling at every moment, at every point of the day. Where are you gonna go to the bathroom? Where are you gonna go eat? Getting to the point where you would actually go through a garbage can to see if there's anything salvageable. 
any beverages left in the bottles. Where are you going to sleep again? Is that same spot going to be safe again tonight? And if not, do you have a plan B? Usually plan B is never good either. And when the sun finally shows up, you thank God you made it. You made it through another night. I found out about Shepherd's Door doing research because I knew I wanted to get my life back together. Walking through the doors, you have a sense that this place is safe in, in multiple ways. Seeing you have your own room with a bed and a bathroom that you're able to take a shower in, you get that sense of security that you had been longing for for so long. And there's nights I wake up realizing I'm in the bed and I just thank God I'm still here. I thought I lost my daughter permanently. You know, it's very, very hard to give your child away. And seeing her back with me, hugging her, reading to her, seeing her play with the other children, seeing that she has a school to go to, seeing her sleep next to me, it's amazing. If it wasn't the people that gave even one dollar so we can figure out what's wrong with our lives and have them restored. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, bottom of my soul. Thank you. Best part of that is the smile on that child's face. Safe, safe at last. If you've ever had to give up a child to foster care, you know the difficulty of that decision. If you have ever been homeless on the streets or you've spent time with those who have been, you know the desperation. And then when you see something like this happen to a person like Michelle, you understand the importance of gratitude. This morning, God wants to speak to us about gratitude and, and how can we use it well in our lives. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I really hope you do. Would you open to 2 Corinthians chapter 6? We're in verses uh, 1 through 13 this morning. And by the way, if you didn't get a chance to grab one of the uh, note uh, outlines, the message notes, I would encourage you to, to do that. We've got extras in the back. We're going to be actually using this partway through, and you may want to have a copy in front of you just to be able to look at some of the information there. Because there was so much of this one particular chart that I put together, it doesn't fit up there. <laughs> So you're going to need it in front of you uh, if you'd like to follow along at that. But this morning, God tells us three things. He gets on the loudspeaker system at the ball game, and he says, Hey, folks, it is time to be grateful and be healed. We find that in verses 1 and 2. He says, It's time to evaluate our effectiveness and our sacrifices for Jesus and the gospel. And we find that in verses uh, 3 through 10. And then he wraps up this message this morning by saying, hey, folks, it is time to open our hearts to each other and to find love. And we find that in verses 11, 12, and 13. So uh, let's take a moment and, uh, and ask God to speak into our hearts. Uh, I love the fact that we're a church that prays, and I hope you do too. And uh, we need to ask God for this particular passage that he would help us understand it well. So let's pray together. Father God, Gratitude is something that uh, we find um, is 
sometimes hard to uh, get a hold of because it's easy to become focused on the difficulties of life, the challenges, the pain, the struggles, things, events that have thrust themselves into our lives that are unwelcome. And Father, sometimes we look at those things and, and they occupy our emotions and they occupy our thoughts. But I love the fact that you've included this uh, in Paul's message to the Corinthians, this part of it, to say to them, hey, it's time to be grateful. Think about what God has done for you in the gospel message, this good news that God loves you. God loves me, despite the fact that at one time I was an enemy of God. But he wasn't content with that. Gosh, he, he reached out to me in Jesus Christ. He reaches out to us and he says, I want to be reconciled. I want you to be reconciled to me. I want to have a restoration of our relationship. I want there to be a renewal of our appreciation and love for each other. And it's through Jesus we can have that happen. And Father, my prayer for us this morning is that we would gain a new appreciation for this gospel message. And that it would uh, cause us to be grateful, it would cause us to be effective, and it would cause us to open our hearts to each other uh, in love. And we pray that in Jesus' name this morning. Hey, let's read together verses 1 and 2. This is the ESV I'm reading out of. And notice Paul's first statement. He says, working together with him. Now, he's just talked about the fact that we're ambassadors for Christ, and he says, hey, folks, we get to work together with Jesus. We're not in this on our own. And he says, then, since that is true, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and this is a quote from Isaiah 49.8, in a favorable or acceptable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And then Paul concludes in the next verse, Behold, now is the favorable, and that's the Greek word for grateful. You might make a note of that. That is, now is the time, the grateful time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So all around us today, Jesus is speaking into our world. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. And you and I, Trinity Church, get the privilege the amazing privilege of working together with him in this appeal as his ambassadors. Uh, what a great thought this is. God does not send us out into the world like a bunch of telemarketers making cold sales calls, right? He doesn't send us out on our own and say, okay, get with it. He says, no, you get to work with me. And I like this video because like Shepherd's Door, and there are many organizations like this locally and around the U.S. and the world, they work with Jesus to offer desperate people the security they desire. That bedroom and shower, the food, the time of safety and security, all of that is provided in the name of Jesus. And we, too, who claim the name of Jesus, have the privilege of working with him in a variety of ways. So you may never have done anything like this, may never have even thought about it or wanted to, but God will use you in a variety of ways with this message of the gospel message. And what Paul is saying here is there is a message of Jesus that says, do not respond to the offer of God's grace fruitlessly. Don't receive it in a manner that is without effect. The word receive here means literally to take into one's hand for a moment, to observe uh, or entertain an idea abstractly but not concretely, to hear audibly but not absolutely. So it's temporary. Don't take God's grace into your hands in a temporary fashion. 
And, and he talks about this same idea of receiving a little bit further on in 2 Corinthians 11. We'll throw it on the screen for you here where he clarifies it even further, and he says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Please, bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy over you. I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you, and here's the same word, receive temporarily in your hands, but you don't hang on to it, a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's not complimenting them. He's looking at the Corinthian church and the mess that they're in, with all of its selfishness and immorality and conflict and lawsuits and disagreements and misuse of spiritual gifts, and he feels this deep concern for them who claim to be Christian, because he's writing to a Christian church, but they didn't evidence any of the transformative power that accompanies true faith. They were attending church meetings, but they hadn't taken the gospel message to heart, and they were Christian in name only. So he says to them in a clear and distinct message, don't let the gospel slip from your hand without a fight. Don't take the good news from God into your hands like an attractive seashell. You pick it up for a moment as you're taking a walk on the beach. You look at it, you go, oh, that's interesting. Back into the surf. Don't go up to Forest Home and find a really beautiful pine cone. Pick it up for a minute and go, man, this is really fascinating. <laughs> oh, well. And it drops back to the pine-laden path. Don't entertain the gospel as a mere distraction. Don't be casual about this precious gift. Don't divest yourself of what is incomparably precious. He says, my friend, don't leave this moment empty-handed. Last week, Paul told us as ambassadors of Christ, we are to compel people with this message to come into the kingdom of God. Yes, we do it with a gentle persuasion. For sure. But we need to seek to urge them, incite them to act favorably toward the gospel. So let's pause for a second and ask why. Why are we supposed to have this message and, and treat it in this fashion to urge, compel, uh, incite people to believe in it? Why is that so important? And I think the very simple answer is because that the gift of God, salvation, is only available during this age and during the time that we're alive, but not after. This is the moment. If you will, the, uh, the gospel message of Christ has an expiration date. We're constantly checking that on the different foods that we buy at home. I don't know if you guys do. My dad used to say he was a pharmacist. He would say, well, good, Doug, it's good for another six months. And then he would drink the milk that was chalky and chunky. You know, it's like... But the gospel has an expiration date. Jesus clearly said uh, in uh, the Gospels, in Luke 4, 16 through 19, that it is during this favorable time, Paul refers to that here, during this time of favor that the Gospel is here. It says in Luke 4, Jesus came to Nazareth, Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So they invited him to read from the scroll. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, chapter 61. 
He enrolled into that uh, chapter, and he found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year, and literally there, its era, of the Lord's favor. So this period of time during which the expiration date exists starts at 30 AD when Jesus begins his ministry. And he proclaims from Isaiah 61, this is why I'm here, to proclaim this amazing message that will not only touch the flesh, but will touch the soul, to set people free. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 2. He says, this is why it's so important right now to take this moment and prepare. Romans 2 says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So the end of this era of favor, this age of favor, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. This period of time when he comes back, not as Savior, but as Lord, as King, to set up his kingdom. So we have this period of time in which we exist. And Paul comes in, in 2 Corinthians 6, and he says, this moment, right now, the offer is valid. That milk is still good. You should take part in it. Look at verse 2 again. For he says, in a favorable, acceptable time, I listened to you. I heard what was going on in your life. I understand the struggles. I know what you're thinking and feeling. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. The word help there, by the way, in the Greek means to sprint to someone's aid. What a beautiful picture of God. And sometimes that aid is different than we think it should be. And so we wonder, God, why aren't you helping? And he says, no, I have sprinted to your side. So behold... Now is the grateful time, the day of salvation. This is like a commuter on her way home from work who happens on the scene of a flipped and burning car. She slows down as she slowly passes this flipped vehicle. She's the first one actually on the scene. And she looks at the driver's side, and there is an older woman weakly pounding on the window. Her seatbelt is still tightly around her, and she's calling for help. This young woman pulls to the side of the road, leaps out of her driver door with the emergency handle and races over to the vehicle, smashes the glass, cuts the seatbelt, and drags the woman out of the vehicle just moments before it's fully engulfed in flames. That is what Paul is saying God does for us with the gospel. He sees our need, our desperate need for hope and new life. He understands we need friendship and undying love. He grasps these feelings of separation from himself and from all things eternal. He wants to save us from the fires of hell and give us a life that is transformed now. So he, he quickly comes to our aid. And Paul looks at that and he says, Behold, now, when you read the word behold in the Bible, it is a word that demands attention. It's actually an exclamation point in the text. If you translate it into English, it is, Hey, look! Or, wow! Or my favorite, shazam! <laughs> Literally, the Greek tells us that. It's to grab your attention and rivet it on something he's saying. And look at what he says here. Huh. 
hey, look, it's the favorable time, Shazam. Now is the day of salvation. Do you get that feeling of laser focus for a minute? He's just grabbed our attention and gone, I don't want you to miss this. Now is the favorable time. Now is the grateful time. Now is the time to be thankful, to think favorably toward God for what he has done. So think back to the woman in the burning car for a minute. Imagine that you're the commuter who pulled over and risked your life to save hers. You're standing next to her as the, uh, the woman catches her breath and, and realizes how close she came to being a um, toasted human s'more. I mean, that close, literally. You watch as the car rapidly dissolves into a uh, wrecked, uh, charred metal frame. You can still uh, smell the burned rubber. You can still feel the lingering heat. And the fire crew arrives, and it's finally over. And she turns to you, gives you a brief, sterile nod, and walks away. She gets out her phone, dials Uber for a ride home, waits off to the side of the road, the ride arrives, she gets in and disappears. How does that make you feel? What should she have felt? Gratitude. There should have been this magnificent hug that lasted for about four minutes and got tighter with every second. There should have been tears running down her face. Thank you for stopping. Thank you for helping me. You could have died. I'm so grateful. And Paul uses this emotional imagery to say to us, hey, folks, the reality is Death can be true for us every day. Is there anyone here this morning who has a guarantee to be alive in a year? How about six months? A month? A day? I think this last couple of years with COVID has graphically illustrated to us. This is not a guarantee in any way that we will be alive in the next 24 hours. And that's why he says, today is the day of salvation. If you share the good news of salvation, this idea that, that we need help, God has raced to our rescue with the gospel. The good news that he loves us, regardless of what condition he finds us in, and that if we will respond to him, admit our need, say, thank you for saving me. I know it's only Jesus who can do that. Only he took the sins of the world on himself. If you share that with somebody and they say, well, thanks, but... Uh, no thanks, I'm, I'm just not into that kind of thing. Or, well, well, maybe, but I'm not ready right now. Um, maybe later, in a year or so. I've had those responses when I've shared the gospel with people. And it breaks my heart. I'm sorry. Didn't think I was going to do that. Their response is like signing a legally, eternally binding document that says, I choose to postpone God's offer of salvation. And if somehow I die before I accept it, then I agree to spend 
and endure an eternity in hell, separated from God and all that is good. Who would ever sign that? I, I can't imagine anyone ever would. And yet every time someone puts off God's goodness, that's what they're doing. And that's why Isaiah 55 says to us, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Can I offer you the opportunity right now to accept that? Attending church doesn't save us. Being in this building doesn't save us, even if we do it religiously. Someone once told me, like, being in a car doesn't make you a spare tire. You know, just because you've been there doesn't mean you're a part of it. And, and I just feel like it, this would be a good moment. Would you pause with me for a moment before we continue? And by the way, if you're looking at your watch, this is the longest point this morning. But I wanted it to be clear. As a church, we've expressed the gospel as ABC. And I think that's probably a, a good thing. It's, it's a simple message. It's got a complexity to it. But it's simple. A, accept that uh, your soul is in need of help. Your soul is in need of help. That's the eternal part of you that longs for something more, something greater, something lasting, something substantial and eternal. And it's within us, and it's looking for God. But apart from Jesus, we are separated from God. And that's the bad news of the gospel. We have a problem that God wants to solve. It's accepting that. B, believe that Jesus is God's son. He is the only solution that can deliver this new life to us. He's the only one who pays for our sins. He takes them away as far as the east is from the west, and he gives us a rightness before God that allows us to walk into God's presence without fear. Morning, Father. How you doing? Great, son. Good to see you. Or daughter, whatever it might be. C, choose to accept this free gift of life right now. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And... If this is something you desire, I I would love to have you do it today. You don't have a guarantee of tonight or tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation to be grateful for God's gift. Let's pray. Father, I know that we're all in in a process of thinking about things that are temporal and eternal. We get caught up in the temporal things of life. Work, family, hobbies, recreation things we have to do, things we want to do. And Father, sometimes that consumes us so much that we don't think about eternal things or things that can be changed here and now. And yet you invite us to enter a relationship with you that is so transforming that it truly changes everything. The old is gone, the new has come. I pray for each of us, Father, because some of us are not quite ready. We do need to think this through. But, Father, for others of us, we have heard it before, and we've just never responded, and we thought, I've got time. Maybe as a young person, thinking, I've got my whole life ahead of me. And we pray that that is true. But we don't know for sure. And Jesus says, please, be grateful for what God has provided.
Accept that you need God. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has provided all that you need to be reconnected to your Father. And choose today to accept that by simply saying to him, God, I need you. I believe Jesus has done what is necessary to bring me to you. I accept that. And the change is instantaneous. We praise you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So, folks, it's time to be grateful and healed. Today is the day of salvation. But secondly, it's time to evaluate our effectiveness and sacrifices for Jesus and for the gospel. So look at verses uh, 3 and following up to verse 10. Paul says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And now he lists how he goes about presenting the gospel to them and commending his efforts. He evaluates himself. He says, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships. And by the way, this is where the chart that you're looking at on your notes will help you. Hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights. It's not just moms. It was Paul too. Sleepless nights, praying for them, hunger, and by purity, knowledge, patience, and kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet we're not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So Paul looks at his time with the Corinthians and he pauses to remind them of his work on their behalf and he evaluates his effectiveness and the sacrifices he's made for the Gospels. And you notice his sacrifices are pretty monumental. In fact, they're unbelievable. We look at a list like this and we marvel at what he did in his service for God. And he did it all, folks, because he too was grateful for God and what God had done for him. And folks, I think it's good for us from time to time to evaluate our work for the Gospel, our uh, effort to see the lost saved. Are we engaged in presenting the gospel to others? Or do we have this fear, as is oftentimes real, I'm not going to be able to answer every question, but the reality is the onus is not on us. It's on the Holy Spirit. And he just wants a vessel to contain the gospel and pour it out to others. Are we engaged in that? Has our behavior or comments done anything to put obstacles in the way of people believing? Do they look at us as Christians and go, well, if that's Christianity, that's uh, not for me. Have we lived in such a way as to be completely free in our conscience and find favor and commendation from God? This is what he's doing here. And I think the answer to that question of how effective are we, how good is our sacrifice, is based on the standard for the service. What are we being compared to? What's the criteria for effectiveness, for great sacrifice? Well, Paul had already written to them in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, with the standard. Here's what he says. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. There's our standard. Do you want to know if you're being effective? Look at the life of Paul. Does your life mirror his? Does it mirror Jesus? Now, it is tempting to say 
man, I could, I could never reach the heights of what Paul is talking about here. You know, all of the stuff that he says he's done for the Corinthians. I mean, that was Paul's job. It's not mine. He had a special calling from God. Mine is different. That's not me, right? It would be very easy to do that. And I wish we could let ourselves off that easily. But Paul tells us his way of life is to be our way of life because it was Jesus' way of life. I'll tell you a quick story. When my brothers and I were in middle, middle school and high school, we watched the Olympics and saw the pole vaulters. And we thought, that's for us. Now, our backyard was filled with orange trees. Our front yard was filled with orange trees. Not as Bill, big as Bill and Julie's place. But we thought, we want to create a pole vault pit in our backyard. So we did. We created the standards. We created the runway. The thing we lacked was the pit. But we looked at the orange trees and went, that's good enough. So we would vault into an orange tree. It would break our fall and break a few other things. But we would go down to a local creek that had bamboo growing wild, and we would get 12-foot-long poles. I actually tried to find one to bring this morning, and I don't know where bamboo grows around here. But we'd get them about uh, two to three inches thick, right? Cut them off, bring them home. And we would attempt to go down the runway, get the pole up, put it down, go up, snap. And you go into the trunk of the tree. <laughs> now, my two brothers, one older, one younger, went on in high school to pole vault to actually do it. And my younger brother went all-state CIF and traveled internationally as a decathlete. Now, he, I was trying to remember how high he went. At home, we went about six feet. <laughs> I think he went about 13, which was pretty good years and years ago. I want you to see a picture up on the screen here. This is Mondo Duplantis. He holds the current world record. Just set it in July of this year. 20 feet, 2 inches. Yeah, and look at that pole. I watched the video of him actually doing this. And uh, when he gets up to the pole, see, the rule with the pole is you can touch it, but it can't come off the standard. You have to be out of the pit before it comes off the uprights. And if you can get out before it falls, or if it doesn't fall at all, then it's a su successful vault. He went over the bar with a foot to spare. And all of the other pole vaulters are going, I could never do that. I mean, it showed the American vaulter before him barely clearing the pole. I tell you that story because we as young men looked at pole vaulters, the pros, and said, we want to be like them. And now today the pros are looking at Mondo saying, we want to be like him. But gosh, could we ever do that? Could we ever become like that? Look at the list here again. Paul lists nine personal risks that he ran. Affliction, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, rioting, sweaty work, sleepless nights, hunger. Would you take a minute, if you have the sheet in front of you, grab a pen and make a check mark by every one of those you've experienced in sharing the gospel. Because remember, Paul is our example, right? He followed Christ, who suffered and died for our sins, went through all kinds of evil and difficulty and hardship and pain. Paul looked at him and said, I am so grateful for the gospel he gave me. I'm going to model my life after him. And then he turns around and he says, here's the pole, your turn to jump. 
I did not check off a lot of those. I have checked a few, but certainly not all. Look at his personal qualities, eight of them. Being pure, experiencing God firsthand, being patient, being kind, being filled with the Spirit, having an unfeigned love for others. Would you check off the ones that you have exhibited in sharing the gospel with others? Just take a minute, check them off. There are more copies in the back if you want to do this at home. If you are at home, this is also on our website uh, as part of the uh, sermon notes, so you can certainly do that as well. Go to the last column, personal perspective to pursue. He has nine personal perspectives, and he says, look, when I was dishonored, I still acted honorably. When I was slandered, I acted in a praiseworthy manner. When called an imposter, liar, fake, I was still a person of truth. When I was spoken of as being distant and uncaring, we were well known in relationship. When thought of as fading, not having much energy, kind of being kind of a blah person, we were alive with enthusiasm. When treated as a child, we didn't curl up and die. When feeling sorrowful, we rejoiced. When treated as insignificant, we made others spiritually rich. When left with little, we actually remembered we possess all. Check off any that have been your exhibiting of the gospel, how you've been treated and how you've responded. Now you look at that, and I looked at that and I went, okay, I want to do better. <laughs> I want to do a lot better. But when you look at it, you're probably going to say, I could never do that. That isn't me. I, I don't know how I would ever be that good at presenting it in the same manner. But here's the thing. That third column is where God enables us. Look at that. God's divine enabling to thrive. He gives us his truth. He has told us how everything works and that we can rely on him in this world and his truth. If you went onto the um, Forest Home app and you, you earlier this week, you know, filled in the permission form, and then you found out oh, it was not the right link. Anybody do that? I did it. Lisa did it for me, actually. It was like, well, that wasn't true, right? Now, we didn't do that purposely, just to frustrate you. But we didn't have the truth, so it didn't work. But the QR code, that's the truth. It's going to work. So if you go to that, you're going to be able to come up there with no problem at all. And actually, I don't know what they do when we get up there. Do you? It's like, did you fill out the QR code? Did you fill it out? Do they do that? I don't know. Anyway, we're going to have a great time up there. But the point is, if you don't have the truth, it's hard to live life well. So he gives us the truth in the Word of God. Secondly, he shields us with his power. This is an explosive power. You guys have all heard the fact it's the word dunamis in, in the Greek dynamite. But this is a power to take care of us when we feel uncertain in life. He comes alongside us. He comes to our rescue. He comes to help us. And thirdly, he offers us his weapons of righteousness to win the spiritual battle. And that takes us back to verse 7. 
You notice how in verse 7 he says, we have the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Don't miss that. When you're a soldier in the Roman army or in any uh, way wearing the armor of God, what's in your right hand? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? So that's our offensive weapon. It's the only offensive weapon, and aside from prayer at the end. What's in your left hand? Shield of faith, which is able to distinguish or extinguish, not distinguish, <laughs> extinguish the darts of Satan. So Paul says here, look, God has given us his truth and his power and weapons of righteousness to defend ourselves and to be aggressive with the gospel, to share the gospel in a way that it is going to make a difference in the life of the person. But we also have to defend ourselves. Lisa shared with me, my wife shared with me this week, uh, a handout from a study she's involved with uh, called the uh, handout is The Enemy's Strategies. And she read them to me. I went, wow, this is really helpful. How do we defend against Satan? Let me give you just a couple that I think help us as Trinity. Strategy number eight. He is fighting against your rest and contentment. He hopes to overload your life and schedule, pressuring you to constantly push beyond your limits, never feeling permission to say no. Strategy six. He is against your calling. He amplifies fear, worry, and anxiety until they're the loudest voices in your head causing you to deem the adventure of following God too risky to attempt, Joshua 14.8. He is against your heart, strategy nine. He uses every opportunity to keep old wounds fresh in mind, knowing that anger and hurt and bitterness and unforgiveness will continue to roll the damage forward, Hebrews 12.15. And he is against your relationships. He creates disruption and disunity within your circle of friends and within the shared community of the body of Christ, 1 Timothy to eight. We need to use Paul's life as an example for us. Yes, with all of these things he did for them, but we need to sit in the truth of God and the power of God and the weapons of God and recognize they are designed to help us. Here's how one commentator put it. Here's the picture. The Christian wearing his spiritual armor and bearing his spiritual weapons sets out to conquer the world for Christ, but he soon finds obstacles. The enemy has erected strongly fortified garrisons to resist the truth and thwart God's plan of redemption. There's the fortress of human reasoning, reinforced with many subtle arguments and the pretense of logic. There's the castle of passion with flaming battlements defended by lust and pleasure and greed. There's the pinnacle of pride in which the human heart sits enthroned and revels in thoughts of its own excellence and sufficiency. The enemy is firmly entrenched. These strongholds have been guarded for thousands of years, presenting a great wall of resistance to the truth. None of this deters the Christian warrior, however. Using the weapons of God's choosing, he attacks the strongholds, and by the miraculous power of Christ, the walls are breached, and the bastions of sin and error are battered down. The victorious Christian enters the ruins and leads captive, as it were, every false theory, every human philosophy, that had once proudly asserted its independence from God. So it's time for us to evaluate our effectiveness and sacrifices for Jesus and the gospel. And lastly, 
it's time to open our hearts to each other and find love. Verse 11 says, we have spoken freely to you. Literally, we have opened our mouths to you. We've, we've communicated and talked. Corinthians, our heart is open wide. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your affections. In return, he says, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Here's a loving dad saying to his kids, look, I'm doing everything I can to take care of you. I love you, and you're just, you're, you've pulled back from me. You're not engaging. You're not opening your heart to love me back. I want to wrap up with this. This is a, a quote from Ray Stedman. Uh, I don't believe you have it on your notes, or do you? Yes, you do. So I'm actually going to give you some homework to read the last part of this because I want to make sure we have time to finish well. Ray writes, and you can read along silently with me, Paul loved these people in Corinth, and he has manifested that love in various ways toward them. He's demonstrated it, as he says here, by two special things. First, he says, our mouth is open to you. He says that, um, and that means he communicated with them. He told them what was going on in his life. He shared with them his feelings, his struggles, his failures, his pressures, his problems, and he let them know where he was at. That is always a mark of love. To open up to someone is to love them. Contrarywise, to close up and not communicate is to violate love. Ray says, as I travel around the country, I, I find this is probably the number one problem in, in churches today. Christians actually think it is right for them to be closed in on themselves, to be private persons, unwilling to communicate who they are and, and how they feel and where they are in their lives. And that, of course, is the way of the world. The world teaches us to be private, to let no one see who we are. But we need to understand that when we become Christians, that is the one thing we must not do. We must learn to open up to each other. Paul loved these Corinthians. He tells us he manifested toward them the unmistakable marks of love. Our mouth is open, and second, our heart is wide. The open mouth is a symbol of communication. He has opened himself to them, and he has hidden nothing. They're fully aware of all of his problems, his struggles, his fears, even his failures. He's informed them anew of his dangers and hardships, and yet of the resource he looks to for deliverance and support. The Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God. To communicate with this openness to another is to love him, for total love is total sharing. Now he wants them to love, them back, love him back in the same way, not for his benefit, but for theirs. And he says, here is the problem. Many churches in this country are filled with Christians who will not open up, will not communicate their needs and struggles to one another. Their mouths are not open. Our heart is wide, he says. What does that mean? Well, he means there's no favoritism. He included the whole congregation. He was not merely loving the nice people among them. He loved them all, the difficult ones, the ones who were struggling, the hard-to-get-along-with ones as well. There were no preconditions that he demanded before he would love somebody in the congregation either. He accepted them as people. Though he knew their struggles, their weaknesses, their heartaches, their failures, and their resistance, still he loved them. The problem was that they were not loving him in return. This is also a problem in churches, in individual lives, in homes, in families, in marriages today. It is a failure to understand the reciprocal nature of love. Love is a two-way street. It always is. It is inherently so. Love requires a response. 
Paul was loving them, but they were not loving him back. They were closed, unresponsive, coldly self-contained toward him. And the result, Paul puts it in one word, they were restricted. What does that mean? It means they were limited. They were bound. They were tied up by themselves, imprisoned within the narrow boundaries of their own selfish lives. And as a result, they could not experience the richness of life. He concludes, now that is what I find wrong in many, many places and among many individuals today. They are Christians, but their lives are cold and barren. They are lonely oftentimes. They are bored. They find life hardly worth the living. They have to struggle to get up in the mornings to make themselves go on. Why? Well, Paul puts his finger right on the problem. It is not that they are not being loved. There are people reaching out to them and trying to touch them and help them, but they are not responding. And love that is not reciprocated can go no further. To be loved is to be given an opportunity to step into a new and wonderful and greater experience of life, to be freed in a sense. That is what love does. When you love a child, you free him. He relaxes. He begins to feel himself. We've all felt this. So to be loved is to be given an opportunity to step into freedom if you respond. The fulfillment of that opportunity depends on you. You're given the opportunity by the one who loves you, but you lay hold of it by loving him back. This morning, I think God is saying to us, be grateful and be healed. Evaluate your effectiveness and your sacrifices for the gospel and for Jesus. And lastly, open our hearts to each other to find love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this week as I <clears throat> spent time reading and rereading this passage and just asking you, Father, what is it you want to say to us? What do you want to say to me? Because I have to begin this process of change. Father, I think you are saying to us very simply, I've given you this good news of my love for you. Be thankful. And this morning, if you have accepted Christ, I pray that you would experience the greatness of that moment. For those of you who know Christ, that you would be grateful for all he has done for you. Father, I feel like you've also just been saying to us, um, we need to step it up. Father, when we think about our worlds today, around us, our personal circle of life, there are people who don't know you, and you have commissioned us as your ambassadors to compel people, kindly, lovingly, in a process of time, to come and accept the gift. Today is the day of salvation. And Father, I think you're also saying to us, love each other, love me, and know that I love you back. So Father, may we experience afresh and anew your love for us, and may we experience afresh and anew our love for each other. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.